Snowman Podcast. Welcome back to the Snowman Podcast. I'm your host as always, the Snowman. How does one start a simple podcast for such a monumentous occasion? That's been the question I've been asking myself, folks. Because the story I'm about to share with you is too great to share in one podcast. The D-Day invasion was so massive, so important, so secretive, nobody knew the exact day, hour, or minute till the order was given. The scuttlebutt amongst the troops was on a new level. Rumors were flying like a flock of passenger pigeons, too numerous to contain. But despite all the rumors... The exact information of when they were going was in the mind of one man, General Dwight Eisenhower. I've decided to do a two-part episode for D-Day, the one you're listening to now and one that will be coming in a couple of weeks. The reason why I decided to make this a two-part episode is because D-Day was such a massive event. You cannot do it justice by talking about it for just 35 minutes or so. So in this episode, I'll be sharing the strategy of the invasion elements that helped in its success, and the planning that was done by both sides that made June 6th such a vital spot in world history. Sources I'll be using will include The Longest Day by Cornelius Ryan, Beyond Band of Brothers by Dick Winters, Easy Company Soldier by Donald Malarkey, The Soul of an American President by Alan Sears, Every Man a Hero by Ray Lambert, the film The Longest Day, the film Saving Private Ryan, the film Ike Countdown to D-Day, the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers, the National Memorial Day Concert 2019, various documentaries including Return to Normandy 20 Years Later with Ike, wikipedia.com forward slash Normandy Landings, www.fdrlibrary.org, www.history.com forward slash World War II forward slash D-Day, National World War II Museum, and www.archives.gov historical documents. These sources will be used throughout both episodes, so you may hear some of their material in the following episode. I will list them again at the end of the second episode. Glauben Sie mir, meine Herren, die ersten 24 Stunden dieser Invasion werden entscheidend sein. Das wird für die Alliierten aber auch für die Deutschen der längste Tag werden. Der längste Tag. That was a clip from The Longest Day, where Rommel was overlooking the beaches of Normandy and saying that whenever the invasion comes, it will be the longest day for both the Allies and the Germans. D-Day. The day the Allies would break through Hitler's Atlantic Wall and begin the liberation of Europe. Of course, this story doesn't just involve the United States. It involves England, Canada, France, Poland, and Germany, of course. But on the other side, Hitler knew the Allies would invade eventually. Ever since he lost at Stalingrad, he had been losing ground on all fronts. Allied troops had defeated him in North Africa and Sicily and were now making their way through Italy. The Italians had ousted Mussolini, and Hitler now stood alone. Unless you count his cronies, and then he stood, uh, well, alone. Against the combined forces of Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin, 
So he decided to build an Atlantic wall to fight against the pending invasion wherever it came from. He placed two of his top officers in charge of this operation. Field Marshal Gerd van Rundstedt and Field Marshal Erwin Vrommel. Interesting fact, both these top and highly respected officers would be relieved within 10 months after D-Day. Van Rundstedt was convinced the invasion would come at Padekalei and would not hear otherwise. It was the most logical solution, and he made sure most of the German troops and panzer divisions would be there to throw any invading force back into the sea. The Allies knew the Germans would think they would invade at Calais, because it was the shortest distance between England and France, and they wanted them to keep thinking that. So they employed master illusionist Jasper Maskeline to create a fake army, this was genius on another level. With blow-up tanks and cardboard cutouts, they created a massive fake army that completely fooled the Germans. The Allies also added to the deception by sending generals like George Patton there to make inspections. The Germans, they were totally in the dark. Quite remarkable, wouldn't you say? Rommel, on the other hand, thought otherwise. You see, when he arrived from Italy, he found less than a thousand-man garrison guarding Normandy, where he thought the Allies had a really good chance of invading because the terrain there was very similar to that of Italy. So he began to ramp up defenses and bring in more troops, and he soon had over 1,200 troops doing exactly that. He ordered upwards of 6 million mines be planted, a long barbed wire fence laid down so as to slow the first wave of troops so much that they could be cut to pieces by the Germans' brand new killing invention, the MG-42. A high-powered machine gun that was said to be the fastest firing gun at that time. It could fire 1,500 rounds a minute. Real quick, let's break that down a little more. 1,500 rounds a minute is 25 rounds a second, firing at a speed of over 2,000 miles per hour. Let that sink in for a few moments. This would cut the Allied troops to pieces, casting fear and dread over them before they even made it to the shoreline. In essence, to do exactly what von Rundstedt and Rommel wanted to do. Throw them back into the sea before they could even reach land. Just one MG-42 could devastate any landing force, no matter the size. The Germans had several. The carnage would be ghastly. Another tactic that Rommel decided upon was to dam up several of the rivers in Normandy and flood the nearby fields. Doing this would make it close to impossible for airborne troops to land safely and carry out their missions. Instead, they would be bogged down and drowned in flooded fields or be shot down by local German troops. Rommel was a genius. He just didn't count on one thing. American grit. Now, across the English Channel, the Allied forces were under the command of General Dwight Eisenhower, better known as Ike which is how I'll be referring to him from now on. Ike had been placed in full command of the army in December of 1943, and he chose a select bunch of officers to help him plan out the invasion, 
codenamed Operation Overlord. They had to work in absolute secrecy. Hitler had an array of spies and was constantly on the lookout for where the invasion was to take place. But they managed to never give up the location of the invasion site. Not even the troops knew, so as to pass a scuttlebutt around, you know. The entire invasion force was kept on complete lockdown. Quite impressive by any standards, wouldn't you say? Their destination would be Normandy. The amount of planning and scheduling for D-Day took months of preparation. In his return back to Normandy, Ike said on the 20th anniversary of the invasion that a few British officers had laid the ground floor for the invasion starting back in 1943. But they had to make sure they had enough men and equipment to guarantee its success. The other thing they had to make sure would be right was the weather. Now I'm sure some of you are thinking, seriously, the weather? Why would that stop them from going? Well, I'm glad you asked. This is not something I'm an expert in, but from research I've done, the weather in the channel in early June was horrible that year. Storms raging, seas upwards of six feet high, winds, it, it almost looked impossible to give the green light. The other thing that had to be right was the moon and the tides. So much rode on the weather, they had to basically pray for a miracle. So they did. There's no record to show of this, but I know that many of the commanders back then were believers, and I'm certain they were praying privately, and God answered their prayers. Originally, the plan was to invade on the 5th, which meant leaving on the evening of the 4th, but bad weather once again held them up. The weather was reported to break for a short time on the 6th, so after meeting one last time with his strategic officers, Ike gave the order to go in the early morning hours of June 5th. In the documentary 20 years later, Ike recalled he pondered the decision to go for roughly 45 seconds. This felt like an eternity to his staff, but when he gave the order to go, the room cleared in less than 30 seconds. Each of the commanders going their separate ways and office personnel to their positions. They knew the day had arrived, and they couldn't wait to shove it in Hitler's face. When Ike gave the order to go, he would forever change the lives of 156,115 men. Of these, roughly 13,000 American airborne troops were to be dropped behind enemy lines. Now, they had a wide array of missions to be carried out, but since they were dropping behind enemy lines at night, there was a good chance some of them would become lost. So they came up with a clever idea of giving them a signal to identify themselves so they didn't end up killing each other. It was a simple little toy, known as a cricket clicker. If they heard something close by in the darkness, they were to click the cricket once. It was to be answered by two clicks. If they didn't hear two clicks, they were ordered to hit the deck and open fire. The cricket was cheap, but after the drop, they became the most valuable tool they had. In some cases, more valuable than their weapon. The American Airborne Troops were the 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne, better known as the Screaming Eagles. These troops had different targets to hit, but when they landed they were all over the place, so many teamed up together to carry out their mission. The HBO miniseries Band of Brothers portrays this phenomenally. 
Besides the 13,000 plus American GIs dropped behind enemy lines, there were also 7,900 British and French airborne troops dropped as well. And just like the Yanks, they were scattered all over the place. I'll describe it in more details in a few minutes. For the beach landings themselves, over 130,000 troops were waiting on over 6,939 ships to invade the Normandy coastline. The coastline was divided into five beaches, codenamed Sword, Juno, Gold, Omaha, and Utah. British and Canadian forces of the British 2nd Army would attack Sword, Juno, and Gold, while Americans of the U.S. 1st Army would invade Omaha and Utah. They would cross the English Channel at night and storm the beaches just after dawn. It was kind of their thing that the Germans eventually caught on to. The average age of the troops storming the beaches was 22 years old. Some historians believe it might have been younger because so many soldiers lied about their age when enlisting. Some were as young as 15 or 16, about to step off into a living hell. After Ike had given the order to go, he issued the order of the day to every man who would be participating in D-Day. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force. You are about to embark upon the Great Crusade, towards which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hope and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man-to-man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war, and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The freemen of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage and devotion to duty and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck! and let us beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Later that afternoon, Ike visited some of the airborne troops as they prepared themselves to load up into the planes. He had done as much as he could, and he wanted to give them the best send-off possible. He cheered them on and had a normal conversation with them as opposed to ordering them around to do this or that. He knew that many of them would die in the next 24 hours. It is said that as he walked away, he wiped a tear from his eye. But Ike would never confirm it. However, neither did he deny it. If you recall in the Bismarck podcast, when I told you that Hitler leaned in and got a closer look at a computer, and it was the highlight of those two German sailors' day, Ike was very much the same way with the airborne troops. The top commander of the Allied forces came and visited some lowly airborne squad. These guys flocked around him, had a normal conversation with him, shook hands with him, and looked him in the eye and saw someone who wanted to go with them badly. 
but he couldn't because of his rank. They actually did not want him to go because they knew of how valuable he was. Still, Ike visiting them was the highlight of their day and very possibly the highlight of their lives. There are some great pictures of this meeting taking place and I would highly recommend you googling Ike visiting the troops to see the images. You won't regret it. As the airborne troops climbed into their planes and readied themselves to go to war, many for the first time, thousands upon thousands of men were waiting in ships hoping for one thing and one thing only. To get off the ships. Because remember how I said the seas were very rough in the beginning days of June 1944? Well, that wasn't just in the English Channel. It was also in the harbors where all the ships were waiting for orders to sail. And on those ships were the assault troops, seasick and nauseous up to their ears. I mean, these guys were in agony. They had filled up just about everything they could with puke, and they were still throwing up. As miserable as it was for the men, it was harder for Ike and his officers. Because if they could, they'd get those boys off the ships till they were certain the invasion was a go. But they couldn't risk disembarking the men to only lose time by putting them all back on again. The lead-up to the invasion was truly a nightmare for every single troop involved. But despite their misery, all the men were just as anxious to go as Ike was. They were tired of waiting around. And when the ships weighed anchor and began to sail out of the harbors and into the channel, they were ecstatic. Well, or as ecstatic as seasick soldiers could be. Most impossible to believe. Every dot represents a ship. You got battle wagons, cruisers, destroyers, minesweepers, you got assault craft of every size and every type. It's the biggest amount of the world's ever known. Here. Remember it. Remember every bit of it. Because we are on the eve of a day that people are going to talk about long after we are dead and gone. <laughs> you want to know something? It gives me goose pimples just to be part of it. Some of the ships began to sail as soon as Ike gave the order. Due to the weight they were carrying, each ship had easily over a thousand men on it, along with tanks, jeeps, and other armament and equipment. If they didn't leave then, they wouldn't be in position when the time was right. As they made their way across, officers told the men of what their mission was. Land on the beaches, break through the German lines, and capture key towns that the Germans had tight grips on. The boys thought it would be a breeze. They expected some resistance, but nothing they couldn't handle within a few hours. But there would be a vast assortment of problems the ground troops had no idea about and were about to walk into. Just after 3.30 a.m. on the 6th of June, troops began to climb down nets and into the landing crafts that would take them to the shoreline. It was hazardous to do even this simple task. One British soldier recounted that as he climbed down the netting, two of the men who were in front of him slipped on the netting and fell to their deaths between the hull of the ship and the landing craft. 
They were also carrying close to 100 pounds of equipment on their backs, which would have weighed them down even more. This was merely the beginning. The landing craft had roughly 3 plus miles to go before they reached the shoreline, and the waves were still very high. Some of the boats even started filling with seawater. The soldiers frantically began bailing with whatever they had, most likely just their helmets. In some cases, some of the landing craft sank before getting very far. Men drowned with no aid coming, largely in part due to the darkness and radio silence. The others around them didn't know their plight, otherwise they would have gone to help. Several hundred drowned before a single shot had been fired. As they got closer, they realized something else the Germans had set up for defenses. They had set up large concrete pyramids and Czech hedgehogs, which is like a crisscrossing X made of steel. These would not only stop tanks getting through, but also it would stop the landing craft from getting right up to the beach. Rommel was brilliant, and this tactic would cost thousands of Allied lives. On the German side, the shore gunners had spent a sleepless night in anticipation of the invasion. But they had strained their eyes all night and had seen nothing. Then, just as daylight began to lighten the sky, one of the German officers decided to look one last time. What he saw shocked his boots off. And probably made him wish he wore dark brown pants that day instead of the regulated gray ones. If you know what I mean. The battle on the shoreline was about to commence. At 0630, the American forces landed at both Omaha and Utah. As the landing craft opened, they were met with vicious machine gun fire. Men couldn't even blink before they were killed instantly, blocking the way out, which basically made getting out of the landing craft impossible. It became like a shooting gallery. The craft were usually able to hold 33 to 36 troops. Some D-Day veterans would remember only themselves and two or three others getting off the craft. And that was largely in part due to their split-second decision of jumping over the side of the craft. And that's when they found out they were in close to 10 feet of water still. Many of the men sank straight to the bottom due to the weight of their packs. If they were over 6 feet, they had a chance to tread water easier. But many were between 5'6 and 5'10 and couldn't make it back to the surface. Some did by losing their packs and kicking off the sandy bottom. If they were lucky to get fresh air again, they then had to dodge German bullets. The first wave of troops on Omaha were more or less slaughtered. In total, there were over 2,000 casualties on that beach alone. It's hard to know why. It could be because of the high concentration of German elite troops there, or maybe the MG-42. But either way, they had to fight like hell just to get onto the beach. And after that, they had to belly crawl or perhaps make a run for the edge of the beach. For something else that you probably didn't know about the Normandy beaches, and I didn't know this myself until I was doing my research, from the edge of the water to where the hillside where the Germans were was over 700 feet. 
that may not seem like much in the long run. No pun intended. But that's seven football fields lined up one after the other. And halfway through, there was a bloody barbed wire fence holding up the men even more. Their task seemed almost impossible to accomplish. Now, on Utah, stuff was going all wrong also. Uh, but not in the way you'd expect. The 4th Infantry Division landed there under the command of Theodore Roosevelt. Wait a minute. What? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Theodore Roosevelt Jr. But the problem they had was they were landed at the wrong beach. Instead of where they were supposed to be landed, they were landed over a mile south. This cleared up why they met with such little resistance. They were quickly able to make a foothold on the beach and began to move inland where they linked up with the paratroopers. When Teddy Jr. was meeting with his staff, the officers were like, well, what if our reinforcements land at the right beach? He's like, our reinforcements will have to follow us wherever we are. We're starting the war from right here. How's that for gumption? As for the other three beaches of Sword, Juno, and Gold, they also met with very little resistance. But again, not for the reasons you'd expect. On those beaches, the German soldiers they met up with turned out to be not Germans at all. Instead, they were Russian, Czech, and other Eastern European soldiers who had been conscripted into the German army to bolster his look of strength. Yet these guys didn't want to fight for the Germans, let alone die for them. So they surrendered. Quickly. And with very light casualties, the British and Canadian forces began to move inland. Now, returning back to the airborne landings, they were indeed scattered in every direction. As they prepared to jump in the early a.m. hours of June 6, the German anti-aircraft guns opened fire and many of the planes went down with all hands still on board. For those who were able to jump, they sometimes landed upwards of five miles from their mission target, and many suffered loss of weapons on their jump, so they were forced to fight the opening fights of D-Day with borrowed or stolen weapons. But they never gave up. Despite losing a great number of friends, they carried on and took their objectives. One of the 82nd Airborne Companies, Company F, overshot their drop zone, and landed directly in and around the town of St. Mariglis. The Germans in the town were already on high alert, due to a fire breaking out and the citizens of the town forming a water brigade. Then they all saw a whole bunch of giant white birds floating down towards them. The Germans instantly knew they were paratroopers and opened fire. Many of the men were killed even before they got out of their harnesses or before they even had a chance to untangle their guns. Don't forget, folks, these aren't men in their 40s and 50s. They were in their late teens and early 20s. Despite this tragedy, more troops landed outside the town than in it, and were able to take the town in the gray dawn of the morning. The film The Longest Day shows the emotion of Colonel Vandervoot when he saw some of his men still hanging from their harnesses, no longer alive. He didn't give a crap. He wanted those boys down and laid out proper, no matter the risk. And he was determined to hold St. Mariglis for their sake, if for no other.
Colonel, am I glad to see you. Those bodies. Get those bodies down. What are you doing leaving them up there like that? Get them down. Oh, of course, yes, sir, but well, we've been under fire. I know you have, but I don't care. Get them down, down. No one of those boys left up there. Take a detail and cut those bodies down. At once. The men of the 82nd were able to hold St. Maraglise, despite the Germans counterattacking several times. They held till the reinforcements from the beaches came and took over. Back to Omaha, the troops were still bogged down. The first wave was floundering and they had close to a thousand casualties already, probably more. Then some relief came. The second wave of troops came ashore closer this time and the men were able to get off in shallower water. Within the second wave came the assistant division commander, General Norm Dutch Cota, and he quickly surveyed the condition of Omaha and knew he had to get his men off the beach. With his cigar clenched in his teeth, he told the men to use Bangalore torpedoes, and with them, they were able to blow a hole through the barbed wire and knock off some of the MG-42 nests that had been killing the Americans for over an hour by this time. To get the men moving, he hollered out to them, Gentlemen, we are being killed on the beaches. Let us go inland and be killed. This inspired the men to move through the breach and slowly take out the rest of the enemy bunkers. It's amazing what one man's courage can lead others to do. Never doubt yourself, folks. Never doubt yourself. One other thing that aided in the final breakthrough on Omaha was an order given by General Omar Bradley. He saw from his position the devastation on Omaha and could make one of three choices. He could either send landing crafts back out there and begin picking the survivors up, land more relief troops at a different beach and launch a counterattack on the Germans, or he could give the order to a couple of destroyers to sail in as close as possible to the beach and open fire with their big guns. He decided on the third choice, and the USS Emmons and the USS Jeffers sailed to within a thousand yards of the beach and commenced firing. This shook the German defenses completely, and they began a full-scale retreat. So, with the aid of a naval bombardment, the inspiration of General Norm Cota, the G.I. Josephs, who had been bogged down for over an hour on the coast of Normandy, finally began to move inland. The final conclusion of D-Day was a complete and total Allied victory, though it came with a very high cost. Over 10,000 casualties with 4,414 confirmed dead. The Germans had an estimate of four to 9,000 casualties. It is hard to place an exact number to differentiate between the dead and wounded. Even with the vicious and hard fighting, the Allies kept pushing forward, despite bad weather, lack of supplies, casualties rising by the day, they kept at it, because they knew if they gave up and gave in, every single soldier who had already perished on those beaches and in the fields would have died for naught. So when you're facing an uphill battle, when you think you've got nothing else left to give, Remember those fighting through the fields of France. Those boys who became men when they hit the beaches. Take a page from their playbook and never give in. 
As the Allied troops secured the beachheads and moved inland towards Paris, Belgium, the Netherlands, and finally Germany, multiple cemeteries were created to bury the dead, including the Normandy American Cemetery and Memorial, in which around a thousand Americans who were killed on D-Day are buried. The troops who were not buried here were flown home to be interred in family plots and church graveyards so as to be with their families once again, even if they were no longer living. Over 9,000 GIs are buried there now, from the battles following D-Day. The Normandy campaign lasted from June 6th to August 14th, and the casualties were staggering. The Allies suffered an additional 124,394 casualties, with 20,668 killed in action. This is a total from all Allied forces, and those cemeteries had to be expanded to give a final resting place for the dead. Those cemeteries and the total number of those interred there are the Normandy American Cemetery and Memorial, 9,388, the Brittany American Cemetery, 4,410, the Bonneville La Campagne British Cemetery, 2,175, the Bayou War Cemetery, 4,648, the Lacombe German War Cemetery, 21,222, the Saint-Désert de la Sud German War Cemetery, 3,735, the Benesse-Mer Canadian War Cemetery, 2,048. The Bretville-Sulis Canadian War Cemetery, 2,958. And the Grainville-Lagonry Polish War Cemetery, 696. These are the main cemeteries. There are others, and I would encourage you to research them when you go over the Normandy campaign. One of my objectives is to visit Normandy one day. Hopefully soon. I've always wanted to visit there, to see the now peaceful beaches where so many were killed to preserve freedom, to view the cliffs of Pointe de Hawk, walk through the streets of Carentan and St. Mary Glaze, to look at the courtyard of Braycor Manor and the German bunkers that formed the Atlantic Wall. But most importantly, I want to visit these cemeteries and pay my final respects to those who gave the last full measure of devotion. If you can, don't just stop at researching D-Day. Plan a family trip to Normandy. I know that a trip out of the country is expensive and it might take a while, but if you can, try to make it there. Or maybe do this. And this is far more affordable and less hassle. The next time you go to the beach, any beach, I want you to stand overlooking the shore. You know, above where the tide reaches. Once you're doing that, I want you to take the odd position and imagine yourself as a German when you see the massive armada sailing towards you. Then the landing crafts opening, the men pouring out, many falling never to rise again. See the determination on their faces, the fear yet the fire in their eyes. Then walk to the water's edge and look inland. Now, imagine yourself as an allied soldier fighting for every foot of sand never knowing what movement might be your last. I hope that by doing this, you'll be overcome with appreciation for the greatest generation's sacrifice on D-Day. Perhaps you might even give them a salute. Least any of us can do, I reckon. I know, it might look silly. But if someone asks, 
strike up a conversation about D-Day. Ask them what they know about it. You never know what that could lead to. Coming up in two podcasts from now, I'll be sharing with you stories of the men who fought on D-Day and how it would forever change their lives. Here's a few of the names I'll be talking about. Lieutenant Dick Winters, Private John Steele, General Eric Marks, Sergeant Ray Lambert, and many others. This podcast will have more depth to it, for it will be the personal accounts of these men. So I hope you'll be tuning in for that one. My next podcast I'll be sharing with you is why it is important to recognize Flag Day. As always, you won't want to miss it. And with that being said, that will do it for this episode of the Snowman Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. As always, I hope you enjoyed hearing today's story. Please share with your friends and family. And as always, you can find me on iTunes and Spotify. Just type in the Snowman Podcast and look for an American flag with a snowman in the foreground. Till next time, this is Snowman. And I'll see you now, yeah? You know, I wonder if after his defeat on D-Day, if Rommel thought of retiring and going into the hardware business. You know, pulling that ace from his sleeve. You get it? Rommel's ace hardware? Uh, yeah.